O God of grace and glory, may your radiance always bring brightness to our world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Over the past two months, we've been in the season after the Epiphany. Epiphany is the name we give to that biblical story where the Magi come and offer their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the Christ child. And this is a significant event because in the glory of the star that guided them there and in the gifts they bring, we see the glory of God being shown in Jesus. And it's also a significant event because these Magi are not Jewish. It's a signal to us that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, as the charge against him will read on Good Friday, but he is also the savior of the entire world. And so the theme for these Sundays after the Epiphany is about giving us glimpses of this glory of God that has been revealed for all to come and see. And at St. Luke's, we've also been focusing on baptism over these past eight Sundays for a few reasons. For one, baptism is the groundwater out of which our faith flows. So it's always good to consider this sacrament of grace. And baptism is also related to these epiphany themes because it is through baptism that we are brought into the glorious story of God's salvation. As we conclude both these Sundays after the Epiphany and this sermon series on baptism, our focus this morning is on the transfiguring aspect of baptism. Now, what does transfiguration even mean? It's a word that I've only ever heard used in reference to this biblical story. When a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, we call it metamorphosis, not transfiguration but it's the same idea. Trans, as in transportation or translation, means that something is being changed. And what is being changed is the figure, the appearance. Hence, we read that Jesus is transfigured as the appearance of his face changed and he was dazzlingly bright. Now, how exactly Jesus' face was changed, none of us can say with any certainty. We weren't there. But what we can know is that for Peter, James, and John, who were there to witness this transfiguration, it changed everything for them. After this event, they gave their livelihood and their lives to spreading the gospel. They caught a glimpse of the glory of the resurrection, and it changed them forever, giving them newfound courage, insight, and purpose. And so in concert with the readings that we had from 2 Corinthians and Exodus, we see that this event has been interpreted throughout history as the unveiling of God, when we get to see beneath the veil and peer into the deep mysteries of God. And what we see when we look there is God's mercy. Moses has had encountered God on the mountaintop receiving the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, God at that time was seen as the lawgiver who put demands on us and our behavior. But St. Paul understands this differently, writing, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, 
there is freedom. As it turns out, God is more interested in being merciful than exacting, more concerned with us having abundant life than us just following some rules. Now, yes, of course, abundant life comes when we live as God intends, but we don't want to confuse the destination with the purpose or the vehicle. Sure, flying on a plane can be fun, but the real purpose of getting on a plane is to get somewhere. The law is given not just to give us something to keep us busy, but so that we can get to that abundant life desired for us in Christ. And so more than caring about whether or not we're following the rules, God is concerned about whether or not we are alive in the freedom that Christ gives us. Freedom that comes from being unshackled from sin and death so that we can be free to love God, our neighbors, and ourselves. God is not watching us to see whether or not we are good enough, weighing out our good deeds against our bad, deciding whether or not we deserve heaven or hell. That is a caricature of God and a misunderstanding of Christian faith, but sadly, it is far too common. But instead, when we get a glimpse underneath the veil, we see that God is a God of mercy. And that's what we're baptized into, the mercy and the forgiveness of God. It's not a coincidence that the initiation ritual into the body of Christ is a symbolic washing. As a sacrament, water in baptism is a sign of that reality that God has washed us clean in Jesus. That's the reason why you see so much white in church. White is the color of baptism. It's a reminder that when we come to the altar, we do so made worthy not by our efforts and accomplishments, but God's mercy. As St. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, this reality gives us such hope that we can act with boldness, knowing that we will not be judged harshly by God for our mistakes. We can then be bold in following Jesus. Now, to be clear, the world will still judge us very harshly for our mistakes, but God will not. And just imagine what we could do as individuals and as a body of Christ if we weren't so worried about our reputation and results. Both because of this pandemic, which has disrupted everything, and the general trends in our society around religious affiliation, it's time for the church to be bold. Now, there was a time in our history when we could just keep on keeping on as a congregation and everything was going to work out just fine. But those days are over. If St. Luke's or any congregation is going to thrive and be relevant in our community for the years to come, we will need to be bold. Bold in our faith. Bold in our imaginations about what is possible. Bold in our courage to try new things and learn from our mistakes. Bold in taking the risk of loving in all situations. And the reason why we can be bold in doing that is that baptism reassures us of God's mercy. But this kind of boldness is not always well received. We heard in Exodus that the people told Moses to cover up after his encounters with God in which Moses' face was changed from being near God's radiant glory. 
The world will often tell us to put a veil on our faith, to tone things down. It's funny that people think that the idea of separation of church and state was concocted for the benefit of the church. It's not. The idea behind the separation of church and state is the sort of idea that could only have been better crafted by Satan. The intention and the purpose of such a doctrine are that faith becomes privatized, apolitical, impotent. In other words, faith becomes just a matter of personal opinion instead of the very drumbeat by which we are to live our lives. Another veil comes, though, not from, with, out, from the outside, but from within. When faith is compartmentalized, when giving to the church, both in terms of time and finances, is not disruptive to the rest of our lives. And even using that phrase, the rest of our lives, it betrays the fact that we put a veil over faith and we don't allow its radiance to light up all parts of our lives. More than a hobby or an interest, something that we do from time to time, faith is a lifestyle about the totality of what we do. Now for me, an example is fitness and healthy living. For others though, fitness, exercise, it's a hobby. You go to the gym every once in a while, you try to take a walk around the neighborhood when the weather's nice. But for others of us, it really is a lifestyle. Now of course, there's the disclaimer that any lifestyle can turn into an unhealthy obsession, but that's not what I have in mind. I structure my days though around being able to exercise for an hour and I track all the calories I eat. This is not a hobby. It's a lifestyle, a way of living that impacts my whole day. The same is true for praying morning and evening prayer. It doesn't happen by accident that every day I always have that time available. It's a priority that makes me think about the rest of my day in relation to those times of prayer. Now yes, both fitness and prayer, they can be empty rituals. They can lead to legalistic living, an air of superiority, and they can become burdens that we stress about. But only if we focus on the thing instead of the purpose. When we put a veil over our faith, we are covering up the purpose because the practices are not as convenient as we might want them to be. If we want to have peace and a sense of calm, we will have to do things that make us calm and give us a sense of peace. If we value humility and forgiveness, we have to take time to remind ourselves that we have been forgiven and practice forgiving others. As I said last Sunday, the early followers of Jesus were not called Christians. That sounds like a title, like a club, a membership. Instead, they were called members of the way which makes it clear that faith is a process, a journey, a movement that never has an end. But in order to make faith easier, we domesticate it. We put a veil over it and say, well, that's what I do for an hour on Sunday morning if nothing else is going on. An unveiled faith, though, is a way of being. The mercy of God will find its way into our relationships. The generosity of God will change how we view our possessions and money. The grace of God will change how we see ourselves. 
The peace of God will change what we worry about and how we worry about it. The compassion of God will change our priorities. The love of God will transfigure everything about us. Now in Luke's recording of the transfiguration, he also mentions that there was a cloud that came down and overshadowed the disciples. The cloud represents God's presence. And yes, of course, God is always with us. God is always around us. But sometimes God's presence is a little bit thicker and more apparent as it was in this cloud. Peter, James, and John were overshadowed by the cloud. That's the same word used for what happened to Mary back in chapter 1 of Luke when she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit as God incarnate was conceived in her. Now, it's an absolutely stunning statement that St. Paul makes in 2 Corinthians. All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. St. Paul is saying that the glory of God seen in Jesus will be seen in us. That is what baptism is all about. This glory of God that we saw in Jesus is what we are being transfigured into. Not only does baptism turn us away from sin and death and towards God's grace and mercy, but it also pushes us out on the journey of a lifetime. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is described as wind. So we can think of baptism as when we are given sails. Not only does the Spirit point us in the right direction. It takes us somewhere. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read that our life is hidden in Christ. It's not that God's identity and purpose obliterate our own and make our individuality go away. It's just our lives are kept safe in Christ. In the same way that this cloud overshadowed the disciples, in the same way that Mary's life was overshadowed and subsumed into God's story, we too are overshadowed by God's grace and glory. But for those of us who prefer to have the spotlight shining on us and our accomplishments, and I realize that I have two spotlights shining on me as I say this, But if we always want to be the one in the spotlight, we will end up putting a veil over God so that we can be the star of the show. But as any celebrity will tell you, spotlights are overwhelming because not only do people see all the things that we want them to see, they also see all the things that we try so hard to keep hidden. Through baptism, we embrace the fact that the veil belongs on us, not on God. My favorite work of art is the Eisenheim altarpiece, specifically the crucifixion panel of it. And why I like this particular piece so much would be another sermon. But one part of it is that in it, St. John the Baptist is depicted pointing towards the crucified Jesus with the words, he must increase and I must decrease written above his head. That is a description of the transfigured life, not when we live for ourselves, but for God. When we find our glory not in our success, but in what appeared to be weakness on the cross. When we recognize that the way of the cross 
is the way of life and the way of love. And this is the glory of God that we have been seeing over these past eight Sundays after the Epiphany. It is the glory that we are brought into in baptism. As the collect for this week puts it, that beholding the light of Christ, we are strengthened to bear our cross and be transfigured into Christ's likeness in glory. Come and see the light of Christ that changes everything.